You see, our problem is far bigger than that. The problem we have, it can't be fixed with, with any amount of effort that we make on our own. The problem that we have, it, it's bigger than us. Despite all of our greatest efforts of humankind, we can't resolve the biggest problem that we have. Our biggest problem can't be solved by changing circumstances. Although sometimes we're, we're, we're tempted to think that if we just change circumstances, all of our problems will go away. That's not the case. Sometimes we think if the people, if those people in my life will just go away, maybe things will be better. And that's just not the case either. If this conflict just stops, if the situation becomes resolved, if, if only all of these things happen, then maybe our problems will be fine and we'll be able to deal with our problem. The reality is that no matter what, even if you were isolated alone on a deserted island, humanity's biggest problem would still affect you. The desperation of our biggest problem is that we're helpless to fix it. We can't correct it on our own. You see, our biggest problem, it's sin. And, and sin is a very, very big problem. Sin's messy. It weighs us down. It burdens us. It makes us feel bad. It puts us into bondage. Sin constrains us. Sin enslaves. It ensnares. It traps. Sin depresses. It ruins. It, it darkens. It causes rifts and separations. It causes relational difficulties and pain. Maybe you haven't been experiencing over the past few weeks the effects of our biggest problem of sin. Especially around the holidays, it can be a very sinful time. For me, often, it's the time of most trials. Sin is it's the original source of all struggles and trials and suffering and pain and hardship. It's our mortal enemy. In fact, it's the cause of death. It's a cruel taskmaster. Sin, it confuses us. It frustrates us. We see the effects of sin and all kinds of brokenness in the world, broken relationships, unresolved conflict, divorce, abuse, broken homes, and dysfunctional families. It results in addictions and unchecked desires. The desires that destroy by us getting the very thing we think we need the most. We have a problem. Our, our problem is, is sin. It's not outside of us. It lies within our thoughts and our desires. It's seen in our speech and our actions. It's, it's all around us in sinful humanity. You don't have to go far. You don't have to look far to see humanity has fallen and has massive problems and problems that we can't take care of on our own. You can't resolve them through social systems or programs. Sin distorts everything. We're a fallen race. We're not who we're intended to be. We're never able to recover on our own. Sin even distorts the very core of who we are as men and women. It distorts the God-given created roles of who we are. Created in His image with different roles and it twists the views of how we relate to each other. And we see in Genesis that the just curse for mankind's sin, it's, it's not only pain in childbirth, it's pain in relationships, it's, it's pain in work. Even the very ground, even the very earth, is affected by humanity's biggest problem. Weeds crept up. Thorns grew as a result of sin. The effects of sin, they're all around us. And 
if you think about it, only the first two chapters of the Bible have nothing to do with sin. <laughs> the, all the other 66 verses of the Bible have something to say in some manner about our biggest problem. From Genesis 3 onwards, all the way through, the Bible has something to say about our biggest problem. And it speaks about sin so much because it's our biggest problem. We need deliverance from our sins. Freedom from punishment for our sins. We need complete forgiveness of our sins. We need someone to deliver us. We need somebody to set us free from our sins once and for all, to, to break the bondage of sin. We need somebody who can pay for our sins entirely so that no punishment remains. Humanity's problem is we need true deliverance, true salvation, true forgiveness. We don't need shadows and copies. We don't need to hope in other things. But that's precisely what many of us settle for at times. But thanks be to God, the Bible does not leave us with our biggest problem. It doesn't just have something to say about the problem of sin. In fact, the Bible is really all about how a loving and holy and just, good, merciful, gracious, triune God planned since before He even created man. He purposed to send His Son because He so loved the world. And the Son planned to come and offer Himself. And the Spirit's plan was to witness and testify of God's means to resolve our biggest problem. The author of Hebrews is explaining the first four verses of Hebrews that we heard that although God, although He planned the law and He planned the sacrifices under the law. They were never intended to remove sins for good. Instead, they were meant to point forward. They were meant to point to the true answer, the true resolution of all of our biggest problems. You see, the first point that I want to draw your attention to it just comes from verses 1 through 4. It's that the sacrifices of the law, they can never take away sins. The sacrifices of the law, they can never take away sins. And this isn't just relevant for those under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. This is relevant for you and I today as well. It doesn't just apply to the sacrificial system, but also it applies to us. Because, you see, we at times try to atone for our sins. We try to make little sacrifices to make up for our sins. And if, we, if we're going to place our hope in ourselves, then all hope would be lost. But the good news is that the sacrifices of the law can never take away sins. In fact, it says in verse 1 that since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. No shadow can ever fulfill. No shadow can ever satisfy I like the way that the New Living Translation says it. It says, only a shadow, a dim preview. The law was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. It's, it's like the preview for the Olympics. It's, it's not the same as being there in person and watching the Olympics. Watching the previews on NBC is not the same thing as being there. It's like a picture of the Virgin Islands is not the same as going and visiting there. 
If somebody was going to offer you, hey, I've got this awesome picture of the U.S. Virgin Highlands. It's really beautiful. You can hang it on your wall. It's large. It's gorgeous. It will remind you of how nice it is to be there. You can have that or an all-expense trip paid to go to the Virgin Islands. What would you choose? I doubt you'd choose the picture. You see, it's not the same thing. A picture is just a shadow, a dim reality. I mean, a dim copy of reality. It's a dim preview. This verse tells us that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come because the law did indeed bring some benefits and some good things, but even those good things, they were only shadows of the good things that Jesus Christ has brought to us. They weren't the true forms of those realities. Like a good mystery novel. I like to read mystery novels. And lately my kids and I have been listening to some of the Sherlock Holmes stories on tape. And, and one of the devices that he takes advantage of, that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle takes advantage of frequently in his books, is, is foreshadowing. And it, it draws you into the story and it makes you anticipate what's to come. And it makes you want to know what's coming next. And you think you've got it figured out. And, and it keeps your interest. But also it's preparing you. For the conclusion, like a good mystery novel, so that you anticipate the resolution, the law was always meant to foreshadow the fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's plans. To point to our need for a final and ultimate sacrifice for sins. The sacrifices provided under the law, they can never make perfect. They were only meant to point to the need for a permanent sacrifice that would finally do away with our biggest problem. And isn't that the cry of all of our hearts? Lord, redeem us. Redeem humanity. Redeem fallen mankind. And here's the good news. The law could never do that. But Jesus has come to do what the law could never do. We don't need a shadow, but that's precisely what a lot of us settle for, isn't it? Some of us try to pretend that sin doesn't exist. We try to ignore sin. We act like we're not sinning. <laughs> you ever been around somebody like that? No, I'm not sinning at all. I'm just angry with you, but I'm not sinning right now. Some try to escape sin through other means, through, through drugs or some kind of means of escapism. Some try to escape big the biggest problem by trying to hide it and pretend it doesn't exist and it, and it leads to inner turmoil and all kinds of false living and it ends up in a life that's a mere shell and empty as one of those uh, thin Easter bunnies you get at, at Easter time. You know, you, you, they look really nice on the outside, you bite into it and it's just full of air. <laughs> and beyond that it's milk chocolate which makes it even worse. Um, it should be dark if it's going to be real. But, so those, those things are not good. They don't satisfy. Some try to, to run headlong into sin, thinking that if I can't avoid it, if I can't pretend that I don't have it, that I'm going to run headlong into sin and try to enjoy it. The only problem is, is that sin only enjoy, is enjoyable for a little while. But sin brings death. Fighting it is not harder than giving into it. Some try to make themselves better on their own or, or overcome sin by personal effort. But in the end, all, all of our efforts to overcome our own sin, it, they fail. They backfire. You've been there. I've been there before. When I just try to not sin in that same old way again, I end up doing the exact same thing that I didn't want to be doing. And how I, I wanted to read my Bible more often. I wanted to pray. I wanted to have worship times. All these grand ideas of what I wanted to do good. And, and I found that 
I was unable to do the good things that I wanted to do. There's no hope to be found in the pursuit of shadows. That's what the first four verses are telling us. These, these feeble attempts to deal with sin on our own. There's, there's no way the law and all the sacrifices that people could deal people made could deal with a problem of sin completely. In verse 2, it tells us just that. Look down your Bibles. It says, Otherwise, would they, speaking of the sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? You see, if the law and sacrifices it provided, if they were good enough, what it's saying is you wouldn't have to keep offering them. But the very fact that the sacrifices require continual offering, they were meant to point to the fact that they were never meant to fully take away sin. They could never fulfill. It's like if paying your taxes once was sufficient, then you wouldn't have to fill out yearly tax returns. But see, the the government would have a problem with that because they do. Every April 15th is meant to be a constant yearly reminder that we have to deal with this other problem called taxes. And, And there's no avoiding that. The very nature of the sacrifices needing to be offered year by year, they're meant to point to the fact to let the people know that their sins were not fully paid for. God was just overlooking their sins for a time until the time would come when their sins could fully be paid for. In verse 3, it explains that. It says, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. There was... No full pardon for sins under the law. And verse 4 tells us the sacrifices were yearly reminders of the inability of the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It says the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. A more sufficient sacrifice was needed. I like the way that a commentator named Peter O'Brien, he says it. He explains, he says, since sin is fully removed only when the conscience is cleansed, since sin is fully removed only when the conscience is fully is cleansed, then partial cleansing provided by animal sacrifices is not regarded as the removal of sin. We need a full cleansing of our consciousness. We need a full removal of sin. In, verse, in the first four verses, the author of Hebrews, he's been recapping why the law and the sacrifice of the Old Covenant, they couldn't take away sins. And then in verses 5 through 10, we're going to see that the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ does make people holy. That's our second point, really. The sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ makes people holy. You see, you can't begin to understand the good news until you really understand the bad news and the total depravity and the lost condition of mankind. And so God set up His plan to let mankind see that no matter what, no matter how hard we tried on our own, we could never atone for our sins. The law was set up to show us just how bad our problem really was so that we could see just how good the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ is. That's how this verse is meant to affect you and I this morning too. We need to see just how big our problem is, just how bad our situation is on our own, that we can never make up for sin, we can never make up for our failings and our shortcomings, so that we can really revel in the fact that the body of Jesus 
It makes people holy. It makes sinful people holy. The sacrifice of Jesus of Himself is able to make the foulest clean. Verses 5-7, to seven, there are a quotation from the Greek version of Psalm 46-8, and it's attributed to the dialogue that Jesus has with the Father when He comes into the world. The way the New Living Translation puts it's helpful again this time. It says, that is why when Christ came into the world, He said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. The very purpose of why Jesus came in bodily form. We heard as Aaron preached last week, Jesus was born to die. He came in bodily form for one specific reason, so that He could offer His body every day of His life as a living sacrifice, fully and completely obeying God. And then finally, so He could offer His body as the perfect sacrifice in our place. You ever feel like you have to atone for your own sins? You ever feel like you have to make up for things when you've been, been bad or you've done something wrong where you've sinned against your spouse or your kid or a neighbor or a coworker, where you've been an idiot? I, I know I do at times. I feel like I have to make up for it. I have to do penance. I have to just, if I feel bad enough, then maybe God will forgive me. But only the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ can make us holy. No amount of bad feelings does that. Only Jesus come in the flesh could be acceptable to God as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins. And he, it says in these verses that He offered Himself. It was a, a sacrifice that was far superior to any animal sacrifice. And He offered Himself knowingly and willingly. And since the beginning of time, the Father purposed to send the Son. The Son planned to offer Himself and the Holy Spirit. He planned to reveal these things to mankind. Look in verse 6. It says, In burnt offerings... And sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. So God, who called people to, to sacrifice, to obey the law, He says he's, he's not taken pleasure in those burnt offerings and sacrifices. What in the world is that talking about? Well, it's not a new concept. It's not a new idea. It's not something that's found only in Psalms and Hebrews. In Amos 5.21, God is saying, I hate, I despise your feast. Wait a minute, God's the one who ordained those things. What's, what's going on here? He says, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings, the ones that God ordained, and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. And then Jeremiah 6.20, it says, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. See, the sacrificial system was meant to reveal our inadequacy, our inability, that that our best attempts to keep the law are shot through with sin. That God is after obedience from the heart, and we can't do that on our own. We needed Jesus to come and offer Himself as an obedient sacrifice in our place. Isaiah 1, 11 to 18 it says, what, is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough. That's some strong language. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
Whoa. These are the very things that God's commanded. There's a problem that's meant to be revealed in them. He says, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes before you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Here is the problem with all of those things. We cannot do them on our own. And then prophetically, Isaiah says, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You see, God has always desired obedience to Him from the heart. The problem is, sin has always kept us from obeying Him from our hearts. Something we could never perfectly get right. But Jesus did. And so in verse 7, we have the words of Jesus to the Father. And Jesus said in verse 7, Behold, I have come. Behold, I have come. What do you say? All mankind could not do it. But behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Although man couldn't keep God's law, Jesus came to perfectly obey God and to perfectly carry out God's will from the heart and to make it so that we can have new life and obey God from the heart as well. Time after time, we see that Jesus' whole purpose, His whole intent of coming in the New Testament, it was just to do the Father's will. It was not, He says, not my will but yours be done. In fact, He taught us in Matthew when He told us how to pray. How did He teach you? He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Our very need is to do God's will. And Jesus came to fulfill what we needed most. Jesus in John 4.34 said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 5.30 says, I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see, the will of God that Jesus came to do was to atone for the sins of mankind, to atone for your sins and my sins. The will of God that Jesus came to do is to seek and to save the lost. In John 6.38, it says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this, listen to this, this is the will of Him who sent me. This is good news for us this morning. It says, That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. That is what verse 7 is talking about when it says, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. He came to rescue sinners through the sacrifice of Himself. And His sacrifice of Himself is fully sufficient to keep us until the last day and be raised up with Him. 
The will of God that Jesus came was to lose nothing of all that God had given to him, but raise it up on the last day. The will of the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now look down in your Bibles again, if you will, in verse 8. The author of Hebrews, he, he's putting together four different terms for sacrifice, and then and he's showing twice that they're neither desired nor taken pleasure in. And in verse 9, it says that Jesus came to do away with the law and the sacrifices, to establish God's will to save mankind from their sins once and for all. Jesus' mission, it was completely preoccupied with doing the Father's will to save a people to Himself. And though our sins are like scarlet, Jesus came to do what the law could never do. Jesus came to make our consciences as white as snow. And isn't that good hope this morning? My conscience is often, often beset with temptations to feel like I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I failed yet again. I've done the same stupid thing over and over again. I blew it another time. My conscience condemns me. I'm guessing yours does as well. Jesus came to make our conscience as white as snow. There is therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. Though our sins are red like crimson, Jesus came to cleanse us from our sins and make us like wool. He abolished the law. He established God's will through offering himself. And by doing so, it says in verse 10 that he really he replaced the old covenant. He replaced the old way of relating to God with a new way. Look in verse 10. It says, And by that will we have been sanctified. And by that will we have been sanctified. Are you catching the past tense of that? And by that will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, does that mean that you're perfect in one sense, that you don't sin any longer? No. But what it means is that God now views you as completely holy, sanctified, set apart for Him in His sight. And we have been, for all who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified. You don't ever have to wonder again, am I, am I, am I okay to go before God? How does God look at me? How does God view me? Does he, does, he, does he treat me according to all my sins? Does he think I'm a filthy, rotten loser? The answer for all those who place their faith in Jesus is that no. He sees you as sanctified and holy. Now, he's not clueless. What he did was he took all of your unrighteousness that you ever have and never will commit. And he... He placed that unrighteousness on Jesus. And he punished Jesus fully when Jesus offered himself once and for all. We don't have a religion of continual sacrifices. You see, in Christ we have one sacrifice for all time, never to be repeated. And we, as Christians, need to remind ourselves that we no longer have to pay a sacrifice for sins. But it wasn't just the will of the Father to send the Son. We learn in these verses that it was Jesus Christ who willingly offered His own body as a perfect sacrifice so that all who believe in Him are sanctified by His self-sacrifice. You ever feel defiled? 
Maybe you have not been reading your Bible over the Christmas break. If you're like most of us, uh, things have been busy, you slept in a few days, you didn't have those times with God like you wanted to, like you planned to have all these deep meetings. I've got a week off, I'm going to spend all this time with God. And you realize, oh, good, it never happened. I'm such a loser. Maybe you feel defiled. Maybe you got into arguments with your relative that you were hoping to share the gospel with. Maybe you got angry when things didn't go your way. All your best intentions, they failed miserably. This verse is meant to give us hope, to take heart that Jesus perfectly carried out God's will so that we are made holy by the sacrifice of himself. He has made all of us who have been defiled by sins holy, clean, and pure in his sight. So that no matter how you feel, you can say, you know what, I, I, I'm not going to be led by my feelings. I'm going to put my faith, my hope, not in how I feel but I'll put my hope and my faith in the fact that he says that I have been made sanctified. That's my hope. That's my trust. That's my confidence. But you see, the good news doesn't stop there. The sacrifice of Jesus didn't just make us holy and undefiled before God, only leave us to stand on our own two feet after we become a Christian. I know I'm tempted to feel that way. Well, um, God saved me from all my past and everything I've done and all the bad things I've done in the past, but now that I'm a Christian, he expects me to kind of stand on my own. Well, not just in these verses, but in Galatians as well. It says, you, you foolish Galatians who's bewitched you. you, you didn't begin this on your own. How do you think you're going to keep this on your own? The good news does not stop with Jesus making us holy. The third point that we're going to look at in these verses, in verses 11 through 14, it's the sacrifice of Jesus. It's complete for all time. It's complete for our past. It's complete for our present. It's complete for tomorrow when you're going to mess up again. The sacrifice of Jesus is complete for all time. He contrasts the priest's work of old with Jesus' work. The priest, it says, never sat down on their service. In fact, there was not a, there was no seats in the temple. There were no seats in the tabernacle because they were constantly to be moving and going and doing and working. But what does it say in these verses? It says that Jesus sat down. That's good hope. He's, He's rested from the work of sanctification that he's done on our behalf. He's rested from the work of justifying us, making us righteous in his sight. He's rested from the once and for all work. And when he died on the cross, he said some very important thing. He said to tell us, I said, it is finished. You see, because his, his sacrifice is complete once and for all time. And then it tells us that his single sacrifice for sins, it's sufficient to take away all sins. But verse 13 says that he's waiting for what is surely going to happen. He's waiting for what's going to happen in part of God's plan. You see, even though all the enemies of Christ, they have been defeated, they have not yet been made a footstool for his feet. One day all things, all the enemies of Christ will be subdued. In our lives, we experience that. We feel that, don't we? We're, we're not fully sanctified. Even though we're sanctified in, in God's sight, we know that we continue to sin. We continue to fail, don't we? Maybe it's just the person beside you. You know they fail. <laughs> you see, the enemy of sin, it still hangs around us. Our greatest problem, it's still hanging around. The, the power of sin has been broken. 
We don't have to obey it any longer. And in fact, now we can obey God from the heart, but it still taunts us, it still tempts us. So it says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected, so he's already done it, for all time, those who are being sanctified. So he's already done it, perfected us. But yet we're still in the process of being sanctified. We're still in the process of being made like Jesus, being conformed to His image. And we experience that day by day as the Holy Spirit works in us to convict us of sin, to, to write His laws on our hearts and to tell us of when we sin so that we can be made more like Him. But we can trust that He's already perfected us. He's already made us clean and holy, even though we're still in the process of growing in Him. And I don't know about you, but when I see that I'm still in process, I feel like I'm never growing like I've never grown before. Sometimes as a Christian, you feel like, I don't think I've ever grown. I don't, I don't feel any more holy than I was when I first became a Christian. That's not true. What's happening is actually God's making you more and more aware of areas where you aren't holy, where you need to be more like Him. And He graciously and kindly doesn't reveal all of your sins at once when you first become a Christian, where I think we'd all die. <laughs> he reveals enough, um, and He gives us the conviction of sins that we're able to bear. He never gives us more than we're able to bear. And so as you experience the Christian walk, and continually you have a need to grow, and you realize that I still keep sinning, that's actually meant to give you hope that you're experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That God's at work in you because you don't want to sin anymore. You don't want to do the things that you know you're not supposed to do. And you want to do the things that you know you should. That very conflict is a sign of His perfecting work in you. It's a quote by a guy like, named Ligon Duncan. He says, all of us who have been Christians very long have known what it is to wrestle with the issue of knowing the forgiveness of God for our past sins. Some sins that we have committed have so touched us with a sense of how maddening and saddening it is that we have done those sins. It is really hard to let them go. I have those things in my life too. What we often try and do in order to deal with those sins is attempt to atone for those sins in some way ourselves. To make up for them, to be a better person. Now, it's not wrong to want to live in a way that's pleasing to God. But here's the subtle temptation. You can feel like if you live better, that you've made yourself better. We can't make atonement for our sins. Only one can make atonement for our sins. Not only does the sacrifice of Jesus make us holy, and not only is the sacrifice of Jesus our confidence for all time, the fourth, the final thing that we're going to see is that the sacrifice of Jesus, it removes the sins of His people. The sacrifice of Jesus, it, it's not just sufficient. It doesn't just make us holy. It removes the sins of His people. In verses 15 to 18, verses 15 tells us the Holy Spirit witnesses to the new covenant. He does so in a few ways that are shown here. First, the Holy Spirit, He prophesied through Jeremiah a thousand years before Jesus of a time that would come when God would make a new covenant, when God would fulfill His plan, His purpose for all mankind. In Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's our covenant hope. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And so the writer of Hebrews is appropriating these verses and saying, that day, that time has come when He will remember our lawless deeds, when He'll forgive our iniquities and remember them no more. The sacrifice of Jesus removes the sins of His people. Verse 16 tells us the Holy Spirit bears witness to the coming of the new covenant by putting His laws on our hearts and writing them in our minds. And He brings His laws to our remembrance, doesn't He? He convicts you of things. That's meant to be assurance that He's removed your sins, that He's written His law on your heart, that He's made a new covenant with you. He gives us a desire to obey God, not to earn His favor, but because... Jesus has already earned God's favor. Now we're actually able to obey God from the heart. You see, all of humanity before from the heart was not able to fully obey God from the heart ever since the sin of Adam. The very fact that we want to obey God from the heart is a testimony that this promised new covenant has come. And Verse 17, it says, I will remember their sins, their lawless deeds no more. Here's the good news. He doesn't count your sins against you. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, He remembers. He chooses to remember not your lawless deeds. He chooses to not remember your sins. Oh, there's great joy in that. You remember our biggest problem? Our biggest problem has been dealt with once and for all time, and He chooses to never remember it again. That's the hope of humanity. God chooses to actively think of all those who place their faith or trust in Jesus Christ as if we've never sinned. God's not dumb. He doesn't forget in the sense that like, oh man, what did they do? No. Every time he looks at you and me, he says, I'm not going to remember them as they, if they sinned. I'm going to look at them and think of them as holy. And I'm going to treat them that way. You know, when somebody sins against me, I have a temptation to treat them based on how they treated me. Do you ever have that temptation? If a neighbor's mean to you, if a neighbor's cruel or unkind or if does something to you or your property, um, you're tempted to be bitter or angry with them, aren't you? Or your spouse. Maybe they've done something for the hundredth time. You're tempted to remember those things and to treat them according to that. That's not how God treats us. He says, I'll remember those sins no more. I will not treat them as if they've sinned against me. And in fact, I'll treat them as if they never have. At times, I feel like I've, I have to feel bad enough to make up for our, my sins. Sometimes it's hard for me to put my past sins behind me. Not just my past stuff, but my, my current sins as well. And, and at times, although I know better theologically, I can feel like, you know what, well, this sin's not really forgivable because I've done it again and I know better. You ever feel that way? I know better, so I've done it again, so I, I, God can't forgive me. There's no way He could forgive me. See, I'm aware I have a problem, and the problem's me. It's my sinful heart. But there's another thing, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're more aware of your sin, then you are aware of Christ's finished sacrifice. Then your eyes are in the wrong place. 
You see, any awareness of our sins is really so that we have a greater awareness of our wonderful Savior who's provided a sacrifice of Himself to once and for all time do away with our sins so that we are now a people who can rejoice and say, He's made me sanctified even though I don't feel it, even though I keep sinning. He's made me righteous once and for all time. He's made me perfect in His sight and He's making me into His image and that's where my faith and my hope is. It's not in myself or what I see. times, though, we lack faith and we can wallow in unbelief, or rather choose to believe what we feel like we know. You see, if, if, I, if I were God, and thank, thank God that I'm not, <laughs> if, if I were God, I wouldn't forgive me. Maybe you, you think that way too. You know, if I was God, I, I really wouldn't do that. I wouldn't forgive me. I, I would remember my sins, and if I were God, I'd be pretty fed up with me, actually. <laughs> You ever feel that way? God must be fed up with me because I'm fed up with me. And if I was God, I would really be fed up with me. There's a problem with that way of thinking, though, and it starts with this wrong, one wrong view of God. The wrong view is God is like you and me. The reality is God's not me. Everybody can say amen to that. God doesn't do things the way that I would God doesn't do things the way that you would. That's the whole point. That's the very truth that should make us dumbfounded with gratitude this morning. God is not like us. He doesn't get fed up with us. That's mind-blowing. God knew man would sin, and it says that God's always planned to make a way for sinful mankind to see our need for forgiveness, and He's always purposed to send His Son to die in our place and the Holy Spirit has always planned to testify about God's glorious plan from long ago and to continue to testify about His plan in our hearts. God knew about this ahead of time? The astounding thing in all of this is that God is merciful. When God first revealed Himself to Moses, He said, The Lord, the Lord gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God was trying to show Moses. He's trying to show you and me. He is not like us. He's merciful. Would you put up with us? Would you put up with humanity, your own creation who rebelled against you? No, the Lord is merciful. He forgives the unforgivable. He chooses to actively forget. I can't understand that. I can't wrap my head around that. I tend to remember when I've been wronged. This week, I was angry and impatient with my wife because I was keeping a record of what I thought was wrong. And I was probably the one who was wrong in reality. But we do that, don't we? Or maybe it's just me. I was holding weakness against her. I was impatient with faults or perceived faults. When I have a thousand more, you see, I am not like God. Thanks be to God that He's not like us. 
God always planned to forgive man's sins, to demonstrate His mercy, His long-suffering, to demonstrate that He's gracious and slow to anger, to demonstrate that He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I need to not only know this truth, I need to let it affect me. You need to not just hear the truth, you need to let it affect your heart to penetrate the coldness of the December heart. <laughs> you see, these times, this end time of the year, it... It always has the same temptations to have our, our hearts be dull, doesn't it? To, to not be stirred, not be affectionate, to not be passionate for the things of God. And I think it's because we've lost sight of how great God's love and mercy and kindness is to us. And how gracious He is to us. I need to know this truth so I don't fall into self-righteousness like when I was a patient with Julie because... Often my impatience. It's just a sign that I expect other people to change on their own as if I've changed on my own. You following that? As if somehow I change myself. Well, that's just self-righteousness there because only God can change me. Only God made me perfect. Only God is sanctifying me. So I shouldn't expect somebody else to grow without God ha having it happen. And so if somebody is not as far along as I think I am... <laughs> If somebody is not understanding things like I think I understand things, then I should say, you know what? I mean, pray for them because that can only be revealed. It can only be done by God. And I, if I have any growth in that area, that's only because of what God's done in me. That's meant to create humility in our hearts and gratitude for the work that God's doing in us too. The reality, it's meant to make us patient with each other and humble. We didn't make ourselves forgiven. You didn't forgive yourself. Despite the pop culture that says you have to forgive yourself. No, God had to forgive you. We can't sanctify ourselves. It required the death of Jesus. And here's a wonderful truth in verse 18. Where there's forgiveness of these, all of our lawless deeds, all of our sins, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. You see, the greatest news we can have is that our greatest problem has been dealt with. That's why I started off there. Our greatest problem has been dealt with once and for all. No sacrifices remain. No offerings remain. Nothing you ever do, good or bad, will ever add to or subtract from the work that God has done on your behalf. When God said, it is finished, He meant it. He's forgiven our sins. There's no longer any offering. What's the main idea of the passage that God would have for our church this morning? What's the main point of all of this? It's really simple. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone has perfectly taken away sins. The sacrifice of Jesus alone has perfectly taken away sins. You see, if there could be any punishment remaining for our sins, if any judgment for our sins remained, then that would mean His sacrifice wasn't good enough. And he'd have to offer himself again, but it's not the case. It says, no more offering for sin remains. The truth of this good news that our sins and our lawless deeds are forgotten. That our sins have been forgiven. It's meant to affect the way we relate to God. It's meant to affect the way we relate to each other as well. 
We don't need to try to hide. We don't need to try to ignore or pretend that we don't sin. We can freely confess our sins to God knowing that He makes us clean from all unrighteousness. Because God's people's sins have been removed, a sin offering, it isn't necessary any longer. So when you're feeling condemned because you didn't do what you were supposed to do, realize that that's subtly you trying to atone for yourself and for your sins. But no atonement remains. No offering remains. That's meant to give you hope. To make you grateful. It's meant to give us great joy and desire to say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to forsake sin, not because I have to earn it, but because He's already earned it. And now I can live a life because the Holy Spirit's within me and He's written His law on my heart. And now He's given me the ability to, to please Him from the heart. God intends for us to live in the good of the promise of verse 14. We've been perfected by all time by the single sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Have the band go ahead and come up. As Christians, our boast is not in ourselves. We're not better than someone else. We're not somehow more enlightened. Now, the Holy Spirit has enlightened us. But that's something that He does. When you experience other people who sin against you, you're not better than them. God's just saved you and let you know. Let you know Him and let you know your need for Him and let you trust in Him. And these truths, they're meant to affect us. They're meant to give us hope and joy. And they're meant to help us grow as disciples. And then they're meant for us to go and make disciples. Let's go ahead and stand And this morning, we can realistically face our sins. Maybe you've been experiencing condemnation. Maybe your heart has been hard. Maybe you've been feeling dull and weak and weary. This morning, let's realistically face our sins. Let's cry out to Jesus in our weakness and our dullness and trust in Him alone to save us because He does. Amen.